0: When we are not planning the next Emirates Airline Festival of Literature, we're guessing who done it, debating the ultimate feel-good novel, or reading the stacks of books that line our office walls. Then we talk to some of our favourite authors about these books on the Boundless Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast from the Emirates Literature Foundation. Subscribe today wherever you are listening right now. You'll also find a link in the show notes. This session was recorded at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature 2021 with a live audience. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for being here. My name is Ahlam Belouki, I'm the director of the festival, and it gives me immense pleasure to be moderating this conversation today. Before we start, uh, I would like to thank the the sponsors of this session, Dubai Tourism, and the Ministry of Culture and Youth. Elif Shafak is an award-winning British-Turkish novelist. She writes in both Turkish and English and has published 18 books, 11 of which are novels. Her work has been translated into 54 languages. Her latest novel, 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in the Strange World, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and RSL ondaci Prize and chosen Blackwell's Book of the Year. Her previous novel, The 40 Rules of Love, was chosen by BBC amongst 100 novels that shaped our world. Chafak holds a PhD in political science, and she's taught at various universities in Turkey, the US, and the UK, including St. Anne's College, Oxford University, where she is an honorary fellow. Chafak is a fellow and a vice president of the Royal Society of Literature. She's a member of we Forum Global Agenda Council on Creative Economy and a founding member of ECFR, an advocate of women's rights, LGBTQ rights, and freedom of speech. Shafak is an inspiring public speaker and twice TED Global speaker. She contributes to major publications around the world. She was awarded the Medal of Chevalier de l'Or des Arts et des Lettres. In 2017, she was chosen by Politico as one of the 12 people who will give you a much-needed lift of the heart. Shafak has judged numerous literary prizes and chaired the Welcome Prize and is presently judging the Penn-Nabogov Prize, Please welcome Elif Shafak.
1: Thank you so much. So good to join me.
0: Elif, it's such an honor to have you speak at the festival this year. Thank you for being with us. And how are you?
1: I'm, I'm okay, but it's a very strange time, isn't it, all around the world? Uh, it's a it's a crossroads, and it's a very worrying time. So maybe we'll talk about our worries as well throughout yeah.
0: this talk. I'm actually I'm I'm quite interested in your contemplations of the last year, and you've captured it so well in your um, latest nonfiction, uh, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division and if everyone's okay with it and if you're okay with it, I think we'll keep the conversation fluid and we'll go back and forth between um, how to stay sane in an age of division and 10 minutes, 38 seconds in the strange world, so that um, they're quite linked together as well. So to start the conversation, um, I want to... uh, This is not a spoiler. Uh, The main character in... Uh, the book Layla actually dies in the first page um, of the novel, and I want to just ask you if that was an immediate challenge that you put in the beginning of your
1: journey with this book. Indeed, and I so appreciate that you also mentioned the, you know, that that the two books are connected. In fact, even though one is fiction and, and one is one is nonfiction, um, re- with regards to. 10 minutes, 38 seconds, it was a big challenge actually to have a main character who dies on the very first page. Um, However, I became very interested in these scientific studies that show after the moment of death, after our hearts stop beating, the human mind can remain active for another few minutes. And sometimes this can go on up to 10 minutes. So to me as a writer, that was a big puzzle. What happens inside the human mind in that limited amount of time? And if it is true that the part of the brain that is in charge of long-term memory is the last bit to shut down, then what do the dead remember? Do they remember the good things or the bad things? So in a way that gave me the structure of the the novel. And as Leila remembers, even though she's dead, her brain is still functioning as she remembers her past. I think we travel not only into her story, but also the stories of her friends, of Turkey, and maybe the entire region, um, but always told through the eyes of outcasts.
0: And was that a challenge for you, having every chapter be a minute?
1: It It was a challenge, and actually for this novel, I had to let go of so much. So what was so challenging for me was to delete rather than to write because I had so many more memories that I had in mind for her. But then when you have only 10 minutes and 38 seconds as a writer, you have to think what would stay with her in her last moments and everything else you have to erase. So letting go of the chapters that I had written, it was supposed to be a longer book. That was actually harder, but I preferred it that way. I wanted it to be tighter you know, and 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 flow faster. And I was very much aware that she had only a very limited amount of time left on Earth.
0: Yeah, and, and I found it really interesting how every chapter started with a flavor that Leila would remember. So whether that's sugar and lemon or cardamom and coffee. And um, tell us why you chose that. But then also, are are the flavors connected to the memories that they were linked to?
1: I, I honestly think so. and. as you said, in many ways, I think it's a very sensual storytelling in the sense that um, flavors, tastes, smells, all of that is very much central to her memories. But I think this is how memory works in general. Most of what we remember from the past, first of all, we remember through stories. And the stories we remember, there's always either a feeling attached to it or, or an emotion attached to it, or something seemingly small, like a smell or the flavour. This is, of course, a question that has preoccupied writers for a very long time, going all the way back to Proust. Sometimes, you know, the the taste of a biscuit, of a mudland that you dip in your tea, cup of tea can take you back to your childhood. So it is a very central thread in world literature. However, I think for those of us, maybe who come from places like Istanbul, because the entire city is teeming with smells and sounds, and, and is chaotic in that in that way, uh, those sensual details become all the more important. And if I may add this, I also realize so much of what I remember when I think of Istanbul is also attached to these um, seemingly small details. Maybe the smell of simits, you know, these sesame bagels that they sell on the streets, or the smell of fried mussels. For me too, these smells are very, very vital. So I think many people who might be away from Istanbul right now remember the city through those details.
0: Right, and and in the uh, book *How to How to Stay Sane in the Age of Division*, you talk about how it's not only the stories that you're interested in, but also the silences. And so, so was ten minutes thirty eight seconds in this. Crazy world, a, a way for you to give uh, a voice to the silenced?
1: I believe so. And I think throughout my writing journey, I've always been interested much more in the periphery rather than the center. I think literature, the art of storytelling, does give a voice to the voiceless, does bring the periphery to the center, makes the invisible a bit more visible, makes the unheard a bit more heard. And to me, that is very important. Maybe we will touch upon that, but another very crucial detail about this book is of course an actual cemetery that exists in Istanbul. In Turkish, we call it kimsesizler mezarlığı, which maybe the literal translation would be the cemetery of people who don't have a companion in life, people who don't have a friend in life, anyone. Um, and, And I became very interested in this place years and years ago. When you do research, you realize most of the people who are buried there have been shunned by their families, rejected. They haven't been given a proper burial. So there are many minorities buried there. There are abundant babies and there's a growing number of refugees. We always in newspapers read about an Afghan refugee or a Syrian refugee um, who might have lost their lives. Uh, But where are all these bodies taken? They're taken to the cemetery of the Companions in Istanbul. So it is a very sad and, and strange place in the sense that there are no tombstones, only numbers. It's a place where actual human beings are turned into numbers. And my instinct as an author was to try to reverse that process and take at least one of those numbers and give it a story, give it a name, give it an individuality. Because I think literature has to and does de- rehumanize people who have been dehumanized constantly.
0: Right, and if we look at Layla's story in the book, um, she's a sex worker who is, has now passed away and is left in the dump. And then when she's looking back at her life, um, she's had a difficult childhood, which she relives. Um, and then, you know, this concept of finding uh, your, your water family or the people who you choose, in life to be the closest people to you when you've come from, from a difficult background and then the journey she has with the people around us. Tell us a little bit about, um, about that.
1: It makes me happy when people say to me, even, even though this is a book that deals with difficult subjects and um, such as death, such as sexual abuse, um, the life of Leila is, has not been easy at all from the very beginning. But despite all that, sometimes readers tell me that this is a, this is an, uh, this was an uplifting reading experience for them. And when I hear that, I feel happy. And I think the reason why people find this book uplifting is precisely because of that theme of friendship, solidarity, or sisterhood. I find these bonds incredibly important. I think there's a there's a moment when one of the characters she says. Um, We have two types of families in life. We have our blood families, the families we grow up in and with. And if those families are loving and kind and tender, that's a blessing and we should really count our blessings. But not everyone is as lucky. And particularly to those people, the book is saying, please do not forget, as you keep living, you're going to have another type of family and that's going to be your water family. Our water families are composed of our friends not acquaintances, but friends. And I think the number of those friends can't be dozens and dozens, maybe five, maybe six maximum. But these are the people who are the witnesses of all the journeys, of all the seasons that we go through. And when we fall down, they pull us up and we do the same thing for them. So my experience in Istanbul and elsewhere is particularly for people, for sexual minorities, for cultural minorities, for anyone who feels like the other for anyone who has been pushed to the periphery, these water families become all the more important and they help you to keep going. Right, and, and Layla finds her
0: five uh, throughout the journey of the book and they are the people who are closest to her in life. Um, do you think Leila and all the five were victims of their circumstances all along or you know, did they have choices that they made in life
1: I think it's a mixture. Um, I don't like to use the term victim that much in this context. Of course, the fact that they live in a very patriarchal society, the fact that they live in a very homophobic society, um, all those deeply rooted prejudices, biases, discrimination, all of that affects their lives enormously. But at the same time, in my eyes, they're not weak. They're not silent. These people are not passive. So, they have been victimized by their circumstances, but they also resist. They also try. There's constant struggle and laughter and joy and love and friendship and sisterhood. So, it was that aspect of life that I also wanted to emphasize. Um, Beautiful.
0: You say, uh, in how to stay sane in the age of division. You say, uh, there are many citizens across the world today and their number is growing who have a hard time recognizing their countries, walking like strangers in their own homelands. Um, In the case of Leila and the five, um, and her five, um, they were strangers amongst their blood families as well. Um, and, and, And that influenced their destiny.
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed, and, and I think when countries go backwards, I honestly think we women need to be more concerned because the first thing that will be taken away will be women's rights. We have seen this in country after country. Also it is not a coincidence that wherever democracy crumbles, that's in that place, the appreciation of diversity is also lost. So there's a direct correlation for respect for diversity and the quality of democracy in a place. What I have experienced in Turkey is as we have been sliding backwards, as we have seen an increase in nationalism, in religious fundamentalism, we have also seen an increase in authoritarianism. Equally, we have seen an increase in patriarchy. We have seen a loss of women's rights. And in that context, if you are deemed to be different in the eyes of the society, for whatever reason, it could be the color of your skin, it could be how you look, it could be your sexual identity, it could be anything that attaches the label different to you, then your life is going to be difficult. So I I wanted to also explain that diversity is is beautiful, diversity should be celebrated. But this is not only a problem that happens in some countries, I think it's happening across the world. Like when I look at the debates across Europe, um, there's so much attack on diversity right now against immigrants, against people coming from um, different religious backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. So for me, there's a direct correlation between our respect for diversity and our readiness to embrace democracy. Right. Um,
0: <clears throat> I want to come back a little bit to your creative process and your style of writing, which you know so many are in love with. And um, there's a couple of moments, like in the book, where. You know, you describe things in a way that only you do. Um, And that's, you know, when when you say she kept a secret like an oyster hides a pearl. Or when you say, uh, you know, when her brother is born, she saw a feather on the side of her eye and it could have been a bird or it could have been an angel passing by. And these stunning uh, ways that you use words, I'm interested in how that process is. Is that, you know, something that comes naturally to you? Is that something that requires deep contemplation, or are you like constantly observing your physical environment for in search of analogies for your books?
1: I I so appreciate this question. I think it does come naturally in the sense that maybe I perceive life like that. Um, So for me, not everything is rational, not everything is logical. Maybe partly because I was raised by Uh, a grandmother who was a little bit, I don't know how to explain it, but more spiritual. So I had an unusual upbringing. I was raised by two women. Uh, I was born in France. I was born in Strasbourg, but shortly afterwards, my parents got separated. My father stayed in France and my mother brought me to Turkey. For her, Turkey was the motherland. Uh, For me, it was a new country completely. And we came to my grandmother's house. And this was a very conservative, very, very patriarchal neighborhood, and in many ways, I think I felt like we or we were the outsiders we didn't I, I, I didn't think I quite fit in that environment, but I was also very much aware of the solidarity between my mother and my grandmother. My mom is very um, very westernized, very modern, very urban, rational, secular grandma is very different, she's more Eastern more irrational in many respects, less educated because she was not allowed to have a proper education because she was a girl. And at the same time, she was a huge supporter of women's education. So, And, and she was a very wise woman. So she taught me that you there are different ways of attaining knowledge, that knowledge is not only about books, that knowledge is not only about diploma either, there are different ways of thinking. So maybe this distinction that I make between information, knowledge, and wisdom, partly I took from her. But the reason I'm mentioning all this uh, and my own background is because I, from my mother, I got my love for written culture. From my grandmother, I got my love for oral culture. And oral storytelling is usually looked down upon by sometimes intellectuals because it's regarded as the domain of you know, uneducated people or just irrational beliefs. I've never looked down upon oral culture. Mm-hmm. I respect it and there's a part of me that wants to bridge written culture and oral culture. So many of those details that perhaps you see in my books come to me naturally, probably because of my own upbringing, that mixture, that hybrid upbringing that I myself had and also because I'm I'm interested in the poetry of life, I'm interested in the magic that exists inside life. And you write about identity,
0: and if if I were to ask you where you see yourself, um, where are you at home, um, what is identity to you, what would you say?
1: Such such an important question, uh, and, and a very complicated question for me at least, I am not very fond of identity or identity politics in the sense that when it becomes more singular, more sharply defined, I don't feel comfortable. I'm interested in multiple belongings. I think I am interested in fluid identities or, or defining it in terms of water rather than mutually exclusive categories. So when I do look at myself, for instance, I'm aware that I'm I'm an Istanbulite, or I would call myself an Istanbulite, uh, and I think my love for Istanbul is very visible in my work. Wherever I go, it will come with me. But I also feel very attached to the Balkans. So put me next to a Greek author or a a Bosnian author, Bulgarian author, I have so much in common with them. Equally, I feel very attached to the Middle East. I have so many elements in my soul that I bring with me from the Middle East. Um, and that will always be with me. At the same time, I am European. Over the years, I became a Londoner, I became British, and despite what politicians have been telling us in the UK, especially because of this Brexit mess that we're going through, um, they've been telling us that if you're a citizen of the world, that it means you're a citizen of nowhere. And I reject that. I don't think that is true. You can be from here, and at the same time from multiple places. You can have local attachments and global attachments or international attachments or regional attachments at the same time. We can have multiple belongings. Sometimes people say, well, that's a luxury. That, that, that's something only you can enjoy if you have traveled a lot, for instance. Mm-hmm. But I think wherever we are and what kind of life we might have led, we all have multiple belongings. Maybe you were born and raised in the same city, you then established your own family in the same place, but through your ancestors' stories, maybe through your own political views, maybe through your own sexual identity, etc., etc. Every human being is incredibly complex. So whether you stay in one place or you travel, I think we all have multiple belongings. But the trouble is the world we're living in doesn't allow us to voice this or to celebrate this we're told the exact opposite we're said we're constantly being told that we belong in exclusive mutually exclusive tribes or categories and once you're there just belong there stay there so it pains me to see that we never teach our children or ourselves that we all have multiple belongings when that is closer to who we are
0: why do you think that is why do you think the world is closing up more despite us having access to the entire world you know at at the tip of our fingers, being on our phones and having the entire world, whatever we want, uh, we can see, you know, on TV, on our phones. Why are we becoming more and more closed in to defining who we are and and
1: sticking with that identity? It is. Um, it is. Life is a learning process, and in order to learn, we have to be able to say, "I don't know." Um, And I sometimes ask myself, when was the last time we ever said, I don't know? You know, we ask each other questions. If we don't know the answer, we can Google the answer. In five seconds, we have the illusion that we know something about that subject, but that's not real knowledge. Real knowledge requires us to slow down. We have to pay attention. We have to focus on it. Real knowledge requires books, storytelling but most importantly, not to rush into judgments, prejudices, biases. So there's a lot of that going on. But I also find inequality an incredibly important issue. It's not a side issue for me. So I'm interested in inequalities, plural, all kinds of inequalities, whether it's gender inequality, whether it's class inequality, whether it's um, you know, inequalities between cultures, regions, I I want equality. I think as human beings, we all deserve dignity and equal treatment. So all those existing fractures and inequalities also create huge gaps between people. We're living in a very troubled time. And unfortunately we've seen the rise of populism. Now populism, in my opinion, is the wrong answer to some very real problems. The problems are real, whether it's inequality, whether it's many people feeling left out, left behind, there's lots we need to talk about. But the illusion is that populism can solve these problems or more nationalism is going to solve, it won't. So in a nutshell, all I can say is, uh, we have major global challenges ahead as humanity, whether it's the possibility of another pandemic, whether it's cyber terrorism, or maybe a financial crisis. We have seen that a virus that comes from one part of the world can change the lives and livelihoods of people living miles and miles away. We are all interconnected. I think it's important to understand that we cannot solve these global challenges with the forces of tribalism or with the forces of nationalism. Very, very true. Um,
0: (laughs) If I were to go back to to the book, um, and you mentioned Istanbul a little bit earlier, and I know it's quite dear to you, uh, the city of Istanbul. And uh, Istanbul is so vivid, so alive uh, in this book. Um, my, my question is, well, it is twofold. One is I want to ask, um, you know, the significance of Istanbul to you, uh, Elif, but also as a novelist, how important is it for the setting or the city in which the story is set to be so vivid and alive and interacting with the plot so strongly as it does
1: uh, in this book? Thank you. I, I think I, I need to emphasize that I wasn't born and raised in Istanbul. So I came to Istanbul in my early 20s as an aspiring author, as a, as a young writer. And I thought the city was calling me. Sometimes we have these feelings about places, cities, we do it without quite knowing. It's an irrational instinct, perhaps. Um, but I I thought I should live in Istanbul and I fell in love with the city. And when you are an outsider like that, maybe you pay more attention to the details that the natives or people who are there, the locals might not be paying as much attention anymore because for them it's it's normal. Whereas when you come to a city with a sense of longing, yearning and love, you really pay so much attention to every single detail like street names, or you pass by a fountain with an Ottoman script on it, then you start studying, you know, who lived there, what happened on that street. What I need to tell you is that, of course, Istanbul is a fascinating city of of striking contrasts. It is a city with a very rich, old history, but that does not mean we have a strong memory. In fact, it is the opposite. I think in Turkey, we have widespread, we have collective amnesia. So Istanbul is also a city of urban amnesia in the sense that the past is constantly forgotten and erased. And in that regard, for an author, it's important to say, but what happened here? What is the story of this street, of this cemetery, of that neighborhood? You know, Who were the people who were living there? That to me was very important. I should also share with you perhaps that I myself lived on a, on a street that was very cosmopolitan once, but no longer. Uh, and on the night of the earthquake in 1999, I was there. And I never forget that moment. The, this, this was a major earthquake. Around more than 10,000 people died that night in just a matter of a few minutes. And when everyone ran out of their houses in this very complex cosmopolitan neighbourhood, I saw this grocer on my street who would never talk to sexual minorities, he he would never sell liberal newspapers, you know, he he was an extremely rigid man. I saw him opening a pack of cigarettes and giving it to my, offering a cigarette to my transgender neighbor, and the two of them smoking on the sidewalk, and she was crying with the mascara leaking. The reason why I'm sharing this is because in the face of death, in the face of disaster, in the face of an earthquake, suddenly, for a few hours, everyone became one. But of course, the next day, it was back to the old normal. It was back to the old prejudices. But Istanbul is a city that shows you these moments, you know, and then you can never forget again.
0: Wow, that's that's a beautiful story. Um, Elif, in in the notes to the reader section, you say many things in this book are true and everything is fiction. Is that true for all of your work? How much? Of your real life environment is in your work, and how much of it is truly fiction.
1: That might be true for most of my fiction in the sense that I love to do research, I love to learn, I love knowledge. And sometimes when people say, um, especially it's male readers who say this, you know, they come to me and they say, I don't read fiction much, I read politics, I read history, I read philosophy, I don't have time for fiction, I want to understand what's happening in the world when so much is going on. And it makes me really sad to hear that because I think why are we compartmentalizing knowledge like that? Mm -hmm. We should read both fiction and nonfiction. To me, it's always intellectually more stimulating if a poet becomes interested in political science or if a political scientist becomes interested in cinema or a film director becomes interested in, 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 for instance, philosophy, that combination, you know, when we we learn from fields that are outside of our comfort zone. So I like to read a lot and and learn a lot. In that sense, too, um, maybe there's a lot of maybe factual or, or knowledge, if I may put it this way, in my fiction, However, if you're asking whether it's autobiographical, I would say no, most of the time. And the reason is because for me, literature is not necessarily telling your own story to the world. That is true. And there there are lots of very good books written with that aim or with that instinct. But for me, it's much more interesting not to be myself, to be someone else. Yeah. to become someone else i'm much more interested in the transcendental experience of fiction because we're all born into a certain you know gender or religion or or nationality but through stories you can go beyond that and so that transcendental experience is much more important to me than the autobiographical aspect wonderful um
0: i want to ask you this you 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 talked about um you've talked about how an, a novel should be a democratic place where you know, the author is not imposing his or her views to the reader, you know, you're creating a democratic space where all viewpoints are sort of presented and then it's an experience for the author and they take from it what they wish. Um, is that difficult for you as someone with such strong views and such? don't you feel like your gift you, know, you want to use that gift in a way to um, better the world in the way that you think uh, it would be.
1: Thank you, it's, that's really a remarkable question. I think I, I am aware of the fact that if you happen to be a storyteller from wounded democracies such as Turkey, um, when so much is happening you can't say, I only want to talk about my fiction. You know, I don't want to talk about what's happening on the street. You don't have that luxury. So there is always some element of politics in my work. Also, I am a feminist. And one of the many wonderful things that I have learned from women's movements of past generations is that politics is not only about political parties or the parliament or elections. Wherever there's power, there's politics. So. When you're writing about gender, that's also political. When you're writing about, for instance, domestic life, that's also a political novel. In that regard, I define politics in a much more broader way. But that said, I make a distinction between asking questions and trying to give the answers. I think a writer's job is to try to ask questions, including difficult questions about difficult issues, including taboos and to open up spaces in which a a variety of opinions can be heard on paper, but then always the writer needs to take a step back and leave the answers to the reader. I find it very off-putting when writers try to dictate their own views or try to teach something as if they're above. Nobody's above, you know, there's no hierarchy. We're all in the story together. We create the meaning together. So I'm very much aware of the distinction between questions and answers. My job as a writer, I believe, is to have diversity of opinion, always leave the answers to the reader. And to me, it's fascinating that every reader will come up with their own interpretation. I have met couples who have been married for 40 years or longer, who read the same novel with completely different opinions. You know, and they like different characters or dislike different characters. I have met friends who are very good friends. They know each other's secrets. They read the same book. One of them loves it, the other one, not so much. Why? Because the reader is not passive. Every reader brings their own experience, their own gaze into the story. And I respect that and I like that. Um, Elif, there's a
0: Specific parts in the book. Um, it's, a, it's far along in the book, but it's not doesn't give away any spoilers. Um, it's a conversation between Ali and Nalan, and then um, he so says something really interesting that I just I'd love to hear it. I, I'd love to hear you tell it as a story. Um, they talk. He asks Nalan what is the main difference between uh, yeah, I think Europe and here. And then the, you know he and he he gets the answer wrong, and D Ali explains. Could you tell us about that scene?
1: Um, because Ali is he was raised in Germany, mm-hmm. he knows both the West and the East. Or you know, I'm using these, of course, big generalizations cautiously, but he has seen multiple cultures. He he's he's a commuter in a way, and he compares how cemeteries, graveyards are designed in major European cities and how they are in Istanbul, which is much more chaotic. Uh, Anyone who who goes to Istanbul will see that the cemeteries are within the city, scattered in a way. And sometimes you might walk by a shrine that belongs to a certain saint, or the traffic might flow on both sides of the saint's shrine. So in a way, the dead are very much part of the life of the living. The, the graves are very visible. And he talks about the social psychology, the social implications of having cemeteries or graveyards outside of the city or outside your um, daily life, You know, having them compartmentalized or to learn to live with the ghosts of the past. And I, I think it's something that I also think about a lot. I thought
0: that was uh, really interesting how he said the city belongs to the dead here, not to us who are constantly reminded of of it being so finite. Um, Can I ask you to read a very small section um, of how to stay sane in an age of division uh, on page 42 uh, about leaving motherlands?
1: Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Motherlands are castles made of glass In order to leave them, you have to break something, a wall, a social convention, a cultural norm, a psychological barrier, a heart. What you have broken will haunt you. To be an emigre, therefore, means to forever bear shards of glass in your pockets. It is easy to forget they are there, light and minuscule as they are, and go on with your life, your little ambitions and important plans but at the slightest contact, the shards will remind you of their presence. They will cut you deep. That's so beautiful. Um, my question to you is, a
0: friend and I had a very interesting discussion about this part. She asked me, how do you understand the shards in, in this scenario? And I want to ask you the same question.
1: It is, um, I think I, I, I get emotional when I think about the shards because These are concepts that I think about a lot, exile, self-imposed exile, belonging, -belonging, non-belonging, being at home, but at at the same time being an immigrant, being a foreigner, all of those concepts and questions are very close to my heart. They resonate with me and I am aware of the fact that I live in the UK. I feel, as I said, very attached to this country and I feel free as a writer, as a, as a woman, to express myself here. But at the same time, emotionally, you're very fractured. So there's a part of me that carries Istanbul in like broken shards, like you know gl- pieces of glass in my pockets, and it cuts me and, 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 and it hurts. So those emotional layers, it's something that I'm, I think I'm also very much aware of. But not only me, of course. So many people are experiencing similar, similar feelings and more and more, actually. Um, And when I read poets, writers, who came from different parts of the world, it's amazing to see that we're we're all talking about the same thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe we're using different concepts, but the feeling that fractured existence is something that resonates with a lot of people today.
0: And I think a lot of your work speaks to so many people because of that particular reason. A lot of what you talk about, there's so many, there's millions and millions of people going through similar things and you just articulate them so well. And I you know, I personally will never forget that uh, image of the shards when I think about people leaving their homelands. It was really, really beautiful. Um, you talk about, um, in, to go to how to stay sane in an age of division. Um, you talk about how when we, when we constantly consume the kind of books that share only our visions or read articles that only agree with our views and our values, that's a profoundly narcissistic existence, right? Um, how does one break out of that in an age of social media algorithms showing you exactly what they think you should see or want to see, and you know, when governments sort of maybe have have a lot more control over, are going towards a more nationalistic um, approach. How how does how do people come out of that and and uh, explore the other?
1: Indeed, and I think this is why we all, as citizens of the world, as citizens of humanity, we need to be more engaged, more aware, um, in the sense that. We need to ask ourselves, are are all my friends thinking like me, you know, if we are surrounded with people who all think alike, dress up in the same way, maybe vote in the same way, express themselves in the same way, that's an echo chamber and we don't learn from echoes. Mm. If we're only reading the same type of newspapers or the same type of books or following the same type of YouTube videos, if all our source of information comes from the same places, again, that's an echo chamber. And I think we need to be careful about that because we as humans do not learn from repetitions. We do not learn from sameness as much as we learn from differences when people from different backgrounds with different stories come together, they challenge each other and they help each other to to have cognitive flexibility, shifting perspectives. I am a big believer in the importance of cosmopolitan encounters, Mm -hmm. in the importance of bringing people from different stories together and let them talk to each other. Again, coming from a country like Turkey, I think by losing that cosmopolitan heritage and never respecting it, we lost a lot. And I'm not talking about a financial loss, or political loss, Also, almost in your psychology, you lose something deep. So we need to defend diversity. That doesn't mean diversity is easy, but to be open to learn, not to be that sure of our own truths, mm-hmm. not to put the last full stop and at least you know, to be open. I like intellectual exchanges. For me, a proper intellectual exchange means I have my opinions. I have been thinking about them. I've been reading about them, but I'm here to listen to you. And if what you say makes sense to me, I'm also ready to change my opinion. So you don't close the door. You leave the door agile, you know? And that is something that we have lost to a large extent, mostly because of social media this polarization, extreme bitterness in our political narratives. But I believe as citizens of humanity, we need to be very careful about this. Absolutely. Um, You talk about the pandemic not just being
0: a public health crisis or an economic recession or political uh, incompetence. You talk about it being a crisis of meaning. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that. I think until almost recently, uh, quite recently, there was this arrogant view of the world that divided the entire globe into almost two camps, into solid countries and liquid countries. Maybe I should start with an example. Um, I I never forget this scholar with all the good intentions who came to Istanbul to study. She She was writing a paper on women writers from the Middle East And at some point in passing, she said to me, she's an American scholar, that it was very understandable for me, a feminist, for me to be a feminist, because I was living in Turkey after after all. Mm. And it stayed with me what she said there between lines, as if you need to worry about women's rights or human rights or freedom of speech or democracy in some parts of the world, but not really quite so much in America or in Europe or in the developed Western world. But what happened after 2016, is that that dualistic way of seeing the world has been shattered to pieces. And now more and more people realize that there's no such thing as solid lands versus liquid lands. And in fact, we're all living in liquid times, which means it can happen in America, as we have seen, it can happen in Europe, it can happen anywhere. And we all need to think about women's rights. We all need to think about democracy. We all need to think about what kind of a future do we want, not only for ourselves, but for the coming generations? That already was the political atmosphere. But on top of that, when the pandemic came, I think it forced us to ask some even more meaningful questions with regards to our main values. You know, what is happiness? Is it making more money? Is it making more profit? What should be our aim in life? Or, or is happiness really? Having the freedom to walk in the park and sit under a tree, because with the pandemic suddenly you realize you can't do these things that you take for granted, and I think it shifted people's perspectives. But it also helped us to question things like what is democracy? Um, do we want what kind of, you know, uh, as I said, a life we we want to live together? Um, we also need to understand that the pandemic was hailed—not hailed, of course—but it was called as a great equalizer mm-hmm. in the sense that here in the UK and elsewhere, we have been told that because pandemic recognized no distinction, no differences, we were all in spoke together. You know, whether you're whatever your skin color, whatever your gender, whether you're rich or poor, we're all in this together, it's a great equalizer. Right. But in reality, it didn't work out that way. So for instance, in London, if you happen to live in a poorer neighborhood, your chances of getting the virus and dying of the virus are almost three times higher than someone living in a wealthier neighborhood. Or if you happen to be an immigrant, you know, brown communities, black communities, refugee communities have been affected from the pandemic in a much, much more worse way than um, people who were more privileged. So all these inequalities were also became very visible with the pandemic, which forces us to rethink about our societies, about about coexistence, peace. So the reason why I'm saying it's a crisis of meanings is we have to redefine our concepts and values. Absolutely. Um, Elif, I can
0: talk to you all day, but I don't want to be selfish and keep you to myself. I'm going to open up to audience questions. I just have one last question from me. Who are your five?
1: Oh, beautiful question. I, I mean, there are there are friends who mean so much to me, who are very close to my heart. But among my five are also books. I hope this is not a very strange answer. Maybe because I was a single child, you know, raised by a single mom, I had a very lonely upbringing. Books really, really became my friends from an early age onwards. So I have very dear friends. I'm a big believer also, as I said, in sisterhood, but within my five, I would also definitely mention books.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, If anybody would like to ask questions, can I please ask you to walk over to the microphone uh, at the centre of the room and uh, queue up uh, at a distance? And please keep your mics on uh, while asking your question. Yes, please. Um, the microphone is in the back. Oh, yeah. hello. Uh, it's Sophia Kashi from Pakistan. I want to. Uh, you was mentioning that people mostly feel isolated in their society, in their country, and it is visible in your first book, uh, Leila book, and in the new book
1: you are talking about. Did you ever feel like that in Turkey? Because you are writing too bold, and it seems that it's difficult for the country to digest all of that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank, you. Thank you so much. Uh, I I really appreciate your question, and you and you put it so beautifully. Did I experience myself similar feelings? Of course, um, and. Lots of reasons. You know when I look at my my own journeys, there were many times, for different reasons, I felt like the other myself. Uh, and I felt like I didn't quite fit in, or this sense of loneliness, it came with me. Um, and And maybe you feel a bit like an insider outsider in the sense that emotionally close enough to love the people, understand the culture, but also enough of an outsider to keep a little bit of a cognitive distance. And I think that cognitive distance is important. It's like you want to talk about a painting, you take a step back. You want to talk about your homeland, you take just a step back, but not too far away. So that a little bit distance is sometimes important for, to, to enable us to see things. Also, perhaps writing in English, we didn't get a chance to talk about this. I write in both English and Turkish. Sometimes you don't need to physically travel, but traveling within languages, commuting between languages, also helped me to think about my own culture more closely. You know, I started thinking about words that can't be translated from one language to another very easily. And that pushes you to think more carefully about cultures. You know, why is it like that? Why can't I find the exact um, translation for that word in another language? So I'm someone who also very much believes in in the commutes between between languages. Um, That was a little bit misunderstood in Turkey when I started writing in English first. Some people reacted to me and they said, she can't be called a Turkish writer anymore. Uh, But that's not how my mind works. I think we can dream in more than one language. We can write fiction in more than one language. And sometimes I'm always amazed to observe women who express their anger in one language, immigrants, you know, who choose to express their love in another language. I, I, I pay attention to such details. Uh, every language gives us another zone of existence. I'm not saying it's easy. I think as immigrants, we're very much aware of the gap between our minds mm. and our tongues. You know, we always want to be able to say more and we end up saying less. That gap is very frustrating. But it also pushes us and, and encourages us to think harder, work harder. So that commute is also another space where I can express my loneliness. Yes, please.
0: Um,
2: hi, um, my name is Abdurrahman Al Kalawi from the uh, Ru'ay newspaper. I, I really loved what, uh, uh, the story you mentioned about the earthquake in
0: 1999, how people for once, in, even for a few seconds, felt inclu- inclusive uh, as one. Uh, but then, as soon as uh, the situation got better, everything got back to normal. What do you think is an ideal uh, role or something you would advise individuals on their own that they can do for us to get to that mentality where everyone is included because there are things not within people's grasp at the moment as individuals but what do you think is an ideal start for individuals to get to that process thank you
1: thank you so much such a beautiful question Um, I think this is precisely why we need stories because when I learn someone's story it's much more difficult for me to make generalizations about that person's religion, race, uh, ethnicity or nationality. If I don't know, then it's easier. Also, I think we need to be careful about numbness. The numbness is something that worries me a lot. I write about it a little bit in this booklet in, in, in How to Stay Sane. Um, if there's one emotion that, that scares me, that is the lack of all emotions. It's indifference, it's apathy, it's numbness. I am very interested in the memoirs of survivors, of you know, people who have gone through the darkest chapters in human history, they always warn us about indifference, if we stop caring about each other's stories, if we stop caring about each other's pain, um, and if we regard people as only numbers, then there comes the threshold when it makes no difference, whether it's 5,000 refugees who have lost their lives or 500,000, whether it's this number of people who died in one part of the world, or that number of people. Numbers do not stay with us. We do not register, we do not feel them. It's only when I know people's stories as individuals, then I realize the people who I regarded as my other are not my other at all. know, They're my brother, they're my sister. I am the other too. So then all those categories start to dissolve. But for that to happen, I think we need stories, and we need multiple stories so that it becomes more difficult to generalize people into easy categories. Wonderful.
2: Yes, please. Uh, Uh, My question is uh, related to your novel, Forty Rules of Love. In Forty Rules of Love, you have uh, chosen voiced bilabial for your various chapters. By choosing the voiced bilabial B, you have let go all the unvoiced consonants to start your novel. Of course, you said in the beginning, it is a spiritual reason why you chose B as the, each of your chapters to start. By doing that, have you limited yourself by not using voiceless consonants to start your chapters?
1: I, I, I'm terribly sorry. The the, the voice uh, quality. I couldn't hear all of your question very well. I just,
2: just one uh, the you have used voiced bilabial b to cha- start all your chapters in the forty rules of love. Whereas uh, by doing that, you have limited yourself by not using other alphabets like l or other voiceless uh,
1: mm-hmm. uh, sounds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so, otherwise I like the novel very much, the uh, killing of the silk for silkworm, and uh, also I feel that you, uh, for me there is some influence of Swami Vivekananda. I don't know whether she has influenced you or Mr. Swami Vivekananda has been influenced by Shams of Tabriz as well as you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I would love to talk about 40 rules of love, but I always feel hesitant um, when people ask me uh, more layered questions about um, you know why I did I, I wrote it in a certain way because sometimes it's it's such an irrational thing you know when you are in the middle of a story, um, you just I love to follow the flow of the story and if I may share this with you. I, as you can imagine, I have a lot of respect for both Rumi and Shams of Tebris. So it's a labor of love, that book. But at the same time, as a writer, I do not believe in heroes. I do not believe in putting anyone on a pedestal. I want to treat everyone as human beings, and human beings are complex with our mistakes, with our flaws. So I wanted to have a multi-layered storytelling that, uh, looks at love from different angles. Sometimes readers thought that those 40 rules were uh, written by Shams of Tabriz. I, I made them up when I was writing the novel. But of course, as a writer, when when you invent these rules, you also have to respect the the source, the the Sufi, the mystical teachings that I that I researched a lot. So um, I try to base those rules on the things that I had read. I'm interested in those silenced voices. I'm interested in those unheard voices. uh, And I'm interested in the the mystical uh, aspect, but I'm not someone um, who tries to, I'm not sure I heard the question very well, so I'm just talking about um, how I approach the book. You you warn me if I am missing anything. Um, But basically I think I'm, I'm someone who as I said, I, I see life as a constant learning, as a journey. So rather than saying, sometimes when people say, think that the 40 rules of love is, you know, answers lots of questions, I feel honored, but it is my way of storytelling. Someone else's interpretation will be completely different. And I'm very open to all of that as well. All I can say is, is it's um, to me, it's a very much a labor of love mm. that looks like, uh, because it felt very close to my heart when I was writing it.
0: Thank you, Elif. And unfortunately, we've run out of time for, for today. Um, we would like to thank you very much and hope that very soon you'll be able to join us here in person, and uh, that we can all meet you and have book signings and, and have you with us in Dubai. Um,
1: you amazing, you're amazing. I'm sorry, happy. I know there's
0: lots of questions, but we have to sanitize the room for the next Okay, one last question, one One last last question. question. (laughs) Um, Hi, my name is Eliza and I'm also from Pakistan and I'm 17 years old. And currently at school I'm actually writing an essay comparing the Islam, the Sufi Islam, in 40 Rules of Love to that of the real-life Ottoman Empire. But um, I wanted to ask, because I'm also an aspiring author, you talked about how you love observing the poetry of life and how these observations kind of manifest in your work. But beyond a more instinctual or effortless kind of creativity, do you have any specific systems you use to help you fuel your writing? Something that perhaps new writers can try to implement in their own writing process?
1: Beautiful question. I think I believe as writers, we need to be two things, all our lives not just at the beginning, but all throughout our lives. We need to be very good readers. Uh, I believe in the importance of reading, as I said, in an interdisciplinary way, in an eclectic way. So not only to read fiction, but read fiction and nonfiction, not only from the East, but East and West, or just having very diverse reading lists is something that I have benefited from in the sense that I've learned a lot from. And I believe in the importance of being good readers but secondly, being good listeners. I think as writers, we need to listen to what people are saying all the time. I try to listen to two things, what people are saying, but also with what kind of energy, what kind of emotions they're saying what they're saying. So we need to constantly listen to what the world is saying to us and be open to learning. What I do in my writing process, whatever the subject that I feel I am going to write on, I try to read everything I can find on that subject. Um, I need to know what I'm talking about, it, especially if it's a historical book, I have to do a lot of research. But then there comes the moment when you stop reading and after that, you can fly. You know, After that, you can start imagining. And from that moment onwards, um, it's, just, it's just you follow your instinct. I think there are two ways of writing a, a novel. One is a bit like engineering, in which the novelist wants to be in charge of the book, uh, and there are wonderful books that have been written with that, on that with that approach. Um, but in that regard, the, the, the novelist wants to know how the novel is going to end. You know what each and every character is going to do. A second way is more like you don't quite know what you're doing. You follow your intuition, but you have a strong intuition, uh, and you have to honor that intuition with knowledge. I think my path is the second path. Sometimes. I don't know what the characters are going to do in the next chapter. Sometimes I don't know how the story is gonna end. I like it when my characters surprise me, but I follow that strong intuition. So constantly reading, writing, learning, and listening uh, is something that I have learned a lot from.
0: Thank you so much, Elif. It's been an absolute honor. Thank
1: you so much.
0: we look forward to welcoming you in person. Uh, I'd like to thank our title sponsor, Emirates Airline, our founding partners, Dubai Culture and Arts Authority. Thank you to the sponsors of this session, Dubai Tourism and the Ministry of Culture and Youth. Uh, Thank you, our audience who are here today and our audience watching from home. Um, Thank you, our AV team, our volunteers, our translators, um, everybody who's helped make this session happen. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Alif. Thank
1: you, Thank you.